0: Welcome to the Khalil Osiris Podcast. At the 2019 ASU GSB Summit, Khalil Osiris sheds light on his 20-year prison sentence, how he found his own freedom, and how he changed his arc from prison to a life of great impact. The Khalil Osiris Podcast starts right now. It is a real pleasure to be able to uh, sit on stage today with my new friend who feels like an old friend, um, Khalil. And I wanted to uh, thank you all for joining us um, and being part of uh, this community this afternoon, from Jacksonville community to communities around the world. Uh, And I think part of what we've discovered together as we've gotten to know each other is the ways in which our communities are so similar in many, many ways. Um, So I, I just began to learn about Khalil about a month ago, and as I uh, spoke with him and we learned about each other, there were a couple of things that I have to believe are, are somehow remarkable or, or there's some other magic going on because um, Khalil spent 20 years of his life in Norfolk, um, in Massachusetts, in prison there, and uh, two years ago, uh, I made a journey with a number of students from MIT to Norfolk And and I was part of a class with 10 students from MIT, 10 students from Norfolk, and we talked about uh, segregation, and we talked about communism, and and many other things. Um, And what I I realized is from from those spaces to South Africa, where both of us have spent some time and where we have part of our hearts lie, um, that how much we've shared soil. So... I, um, I come now on stage with someone with whom I've shared soil um, and and spirit in lots of in lots of important ways. And so I wanted to to take you back for a moment to Norfolk, and I wanted you to describe uh, that space where we shared soil, and um, and that classroom, the histories of it, where you stood there, and, and how you um,
1: how you emerged from there. First of all, I'd just like to say it's been a joy getting to know you. Uh, You have a very deep and thoughtful spirit, and it's allowed me to to feel connected, um, to recognize that in this conversation, we're really revealing ourselves. We're being transparent about who we are. And I, I think the most important place for any of us to start in our journey is to be as authentic as we possibly can be. Typically when we talk about prison, people think of jail cells, they think of corrections. My work with respect to prison um, starts with a very simple statement. Prison is a metaphor for self-imposed limitations. And the majority of people who actually are in prison, in the context that I'm talking about, we will never see the inside of a jail because we engage in socially sanctioned, self-imposed limitations. We walk into rooms and for no other reason than the zip code that we have, we make assumptions about other people. We make assumptions based on gender. And of course, there's the obvious color or ethnicity But we even go farther than that. We are so evolved in our self-imposed limitations that we'll actually look at the color of a person's hair and make assumptions. So being in Norfolk, what really triggered my thinking along that line is that it was my second incarceration. I had been incarcerated as a 17 year old who was adjudicated as an adult for a robbery and served five years. And by the time I was released, you know when you're 17 you think you're a man until you come in contact with men. (laughs) And unfortunately the men that I came in contact with, many of them were savage in their behavior. So much so that I actually thought that the only way that I would be able to survive that circumstance was by becoming savage myself. So after five years and I was released 22, however you may have thought of me at 17, I was absolutely worse in terms of my woundedness and my decision making about the rest of the world and what was possible for my life. So it actually was quite predictable that I would return to um, criminal behavior. And it was at 25 that I was rearrested and the judge looked at me and he said, you know, young man, you could have been here today as an attorney representing a client, a prosecutor defending the citizens of our great state, but you chose to be in my court as a criminal defendant and my only regret is I cannot give you more time. And he sentenced me to a maximum sentence of 75 years at 25. My lawyer jumped up and was upset. He said, this is beyond the pale. This is just absolutely uncalled for. And the judge was very white. He even had white hair. (laughs) It would have been quite easy to look at the, from the basic optics and make an assumption about this is clearly a racialized context that all this is unfolding in and The dynamics have already been defined about what it will mean. But for me, that moment was a recognition that I wasn't going to prison because I had made a mistake. I was on my way back to prison because I had made a choice. And as broken as the system is, was at that time the recognition of my own complicity with the reality that I was now faced with was a turning point. And this is really hard for some people to hear who are fixated on the standard narrative of the broken system. What I'm actually saying is it's not an either-or scenario that I'm pointing to. This is not a binary proposition. I'm suggesting to you that there are multiple narratives. There are both and ways of seeing this. Yes, the system was and is broken. And I was deeply wounded. So when I think about what power I have in the midst of that brokenness, the question for me that was most urgent was how do I now recognize my power to do something with this time, which was, as I said, a life sentence, but he gave me an out. He said, there's a remote possibility that you'll change, and if you do, then in the next 15 years, by some miracle, you'll have an opportunity to see a parole board and maybe be released. I call that a moment of spiritual accountability. It was very simple for me. It was not about what had been done to me, It was now about how I would respond and how I would handle the challenge I'm faced with. So getting to Norfolk, I realized that I actually had been incarcerated before I was ever arrested, long before I was arrested. I had already been incarcerated. Imagine you get to the worst circumstance of your life, the thing that is most tragic that you would pray never happens and you discover there were red flags all along the way. That we're giving you heads up that this is where you're headed, and then you find yourself squarely in that place, and everyone around you is saying, "Yeah, but it's not your fault. You made a mistake." I don't want the cover of a mistake. My choice and power is so much greater than surrendering to mistake that I recognize. Here's what I'm going to do with it. So I looked at the judge and I thought, this is an amazing challenge. It's an incredible challenge. And so I picked it up. I picked that challenge up and I said, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to survive this circumstance, but what I do want to do is make sure that the narrative for the rest of my journey here is transformational.
0: So I want to ask you about the long walk to freedom. And as you know, I'm ass- I'm... I'm- phrasing it as a long walk to freedom for a very particular reason. Yes. In your long walk to freedom, you just talked about the red flags that are along the way. Mm -hmm. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about what the guidepost could have been. And when it is that you feel like you were able to find freedom, and what was that freedom from?
1: So when I talk about prison, there's state-imposed sanctions that defines most of what we think about when we hear the word prison. And there's self-imposed limitations. And these two are inextricably linked. Freedom, for me, was very much informed by my understanding of a a brilliant gentleman's work by the name of Victor Franco in Man's Search for Meaning. He makes the case that everything can be taken from us everything except one last freedom that's actually existential. And he says that freedom is our ability to decide how we will not just respond to what we're faced with, but actually give purpose and meaning to what the journey is that you are on. So I discovered freedom viscerally. I recognize in terms of a goalpost, there were two principles that guided my time in prison at that point in terms of the journey of my awakening. One, because I had seen such savage behavior over the course of my incarceration, I would say to guys, don't break the rules. Principle number one, don't break the rules. and I was always taking the task on this because the guys would look at me and say, Osiris, oh, you were the biggest rule breaker of all, and now you want to tell us don't break the rules. I said, yeah, think about it. What are the rules? Don't rape anyone. Don't stab anyone. Don't kill anyone. I said, do you actually believe that we need rules like that to govern us? I said, those rules are based on an assumption that we will be savages that we are not actually will be but that we are savages. So we don't break the rules because we operate from a place of authentic dignity. Number 2 Because it's important to define what you're for in order to give meaning to your life. Turn the cell into a classroom in the prison to a university. I was crystal clear that my imprisonment reflected a level of complicity that I had not been willing to examine in any honest way, in any authentic way up to that point. And so the recognition of my power suggested that however powerless I may have seemed before that moment, I actually had evidenced great power in my decisions that landed me in a place that I said I didn't want to be, but in fact, everything that I had done up to that point suggested that I did. And the reason why that's so hard for for some of us to to digest, and you're sitting in a prison cell, there's a standard narrative that you are a victim. You have, as an African-American male, the deck stacked against you, the evidence is everywhere that it's true, I didn't want to argue with that. (laughs) There are enough people lined up with that narrative. I don't have to prove anything about that, nothing. What I was interested in is something more possible. How did Victor Franco come to that conclusion in the midst of genocidal incarceration in a death camp in Auschwitz? How did, and the personal example for me, close and living was Nelson Mandela. Whose daughter Makazeewee Mandela was attending UMass Amherst at the time I was attending Boston University at Norfolk. He had such an impact on my life as evidence of what more is possible, I decided to write his daughter. It, I only had the register's address, so I wrote the register. The, two months later, the, a letter comes back and it's from Macazeewee Mandela. We became pen pals. And in 1986, I wrote her and her father and made a commitment that once released from prison in America and successful in doing the work that I said I committed my life to around transformation, that I would move to South Africa and work in schools and prisons to honor the contribution he made to me at the bottom of life. and so. I finished the manuscript for my book called The Psychology of Incarceration, taken directly from Frankl, earned my bachelor's and master's in Norfolk, the same prison that Malcolm Little became Malcolm X, the same university that Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. became Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I could not have planned that journey. I didn't know enough. And even if I could have and did know enough, I wouldn't have sought to be in prison for 20 years. I promise you. <laughs> so by the time I was released, I was 40 years old. And I, can, I, I assure you, not much was expected from a 40-year-old African-American male who had spent his entire adult life in a cell. But I told you, I I recognized I was incarcerated before I was arrested. My epiphany was I could get out before I was released. Because the source of incarceration wasn't the cell or the prison. The source of the incarceration actually was me. And that's why I talk about the existential dilemma, the existential question that we have to ask ourselves about our own efficacy, about our own agency in the face of crushing, crushing opposition sometimes, of no evidence to the contrary with respect to what we hope will be. And the greatest challenge I found in prison to, uh, to the journey was despair. We're very clear, despair is the enemy of hope. And the moment that I was able to confront my despair that I was not even aware that I had internalized. Then something began to shift. And so that letter to Nelson Mandela, to Makaziwi Mandela and the friendship that we struck up and the recognition that standing in that library, I knew I was standing in a space that Malcolm Little had stood viscerally, I could feel it and the obligation that I knew that I had to carry forward. Because in this program from Boston University, they only had one major. The major was a liberal arts degree. And the meaning, the reason they gave simply a liberal arts degree as a major, your only major, is because historically, a liberal arts degree was for, they called it befitting free men. That only the wealthy, would care to get a liberal arts degree. And so they suggested to us that if you are going to get an education, make it for something more than simply a utilitarian purpose of going out and getting your money and being well and you're you're just fine. What purpose, what meaning will this education provide you with an opportunity to evidence, to manifest? And so Madiba, Nelson Mandela, got out before me February eleventh, 1990. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you how I cried in that cell. It was evidence. It was what um, Franco said. No matter how many people died in despair, every time one individual, one person, dared to live with with authentic dignity, it proved the entire system wrong. So I'm not a person who lines up on the side of woe is me. The system is so powerful. I am more powerful than what can be done to me. That was my epiphany. Frankel
0: talked about that the greatest trauma the greatest drama is when yeah, we don't have agency. Yes. And you described the way in which you found agency in, in, in a journey until you were 40 years old. And, and I, I want to ask specifically about what it meant to be able to have an education, a liberal arts education or otherwise, right? To have an opportunity to have an education and how that played a role in your... in in opening up a door for you to believe that you
1: had agency and you had power? Nelson Mandela said, education is the most powerful weapon which we have to change the world. He was absolutely correct. I would take it a step farther and also to transform ourselves. I cannot overstate the importance of education in my personal journey. And I'm not even talking about simply the education of the four walls of Boston University within the prison system. The average sentence for the mentors who helped to shape my life and move me along my journey, their sentence was life, life. Their minimum was life and their maximum was life. It meant they would die in prison. And in the midst of these same men who had been so savage there were those who were so compassionate, so absolutely giving and unselfish and authentic in their desire for something more to come out of that experience that they gave their lives to me. They said, young man, you're going to get a chance to get out of this environment, and we see it. Even though you may not see it yet, we see it. And we're going to pour into you everything that we have. Remember us. When you are there, when you arrive, remember us. And they weren't talking about give their name or anything like that. Their point was be transformational. Lean into the space in a way that says, I'm not making an excuse for having been here. I am more powerful for the journey. I don't need someone to say to me, oh, you were only there because you were black. It's fine. If that's your narrative, if that's the story that you need to explain why I'm there, that's your story, and you're entitled to it. But I don't have to be bound by your narrative. I'm able to create my own myth. I actually can do that, and that's what Madiba did. That's what Nelson Mandela did. And so that's why 25 years later, I arrived in South Africa. After prison, I walk into a store in Hyde Park in Johannesburg called Woolies. It's like the Whole Foods of South Africa. I walked around the corner and I looked at this woman, and I was like, Makaziwi. She didn't know me. We were pen pals. We never physically met. But I knew who she was because there's the Mandela family. I mean, they're royalty. They're in the papers everywhere. I said, Makaziwi. She looked at me and she took a step back because you can imagine they're always approached by someone. She says, yes, and who are you? I said, Khalil. She leaned in. She said, Khalil Osiris from prison in America? I said, the same one, now out. <laughs> and now free. Now, free evidence manifested. I didn't try to get her phone number. I didn't try to get her address. <laughs> I didn't do any of those things. Four other times we met just like that, and she finally looked at me and said, boy, just like that, boy, what are you doing? T- come, I need you to tell me what you're doing here. We went to a eight. After I told her about my work in schools and prisons, she said, I need you to come talk to my son and my grandsons. I'm now chief advisor for the Mandela family. Oh. You don't know, you don't know what's possible until you at least give yourself permission to to explore something beyond what you've been told. And not only am I chief advisor for them, in July of this year, July 18th of this year, we're gonna have, hold the first Nelson Mandela International Day event in Jacksonville, Florida, and Dr. Makazewi Mandela is flying in to be with us in Jacksonville to celebrate something that's historic this year. And my book, A Freedom That Comes From Within, Dumani, her son, who I, she had me talk with, wrote the foreword. And why did he write the foreword? Because he has suffered with bipolar disorder. And he understood the challenge of this idea about freedom in a visceral way. I could not have planned that. I didn't even know enough to pray for that. And I certainly didn't imagine that. But I was open to the possibility that something more can happen than what I'm used to seeing and what I have seen in front of me.
0: We talked earlier about that exact, that exact idea, right? Which is for us to try to imagine that each of us has our own prisons. Each of us has our own prisons and that we don't actually have to imagine that. We should wander around and recognize that that is true. And they may be very different, but we all have them. And, 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 that, and that, in the way in which we have not only self-imposed limitations, but the ways in which, you know, the reason I asked you about when did freedom come is it, it is the freedom of the mind from the prisons that we all have, each of us. And I think in that way, there's so much about your journey that is transformative and instructive for all of us in the room. I, I wanted to ask you about your journey across borders. And, um, and in particular, there are many who come out of prison and you come back to communities where just being able to survive, to thrive, to recognize what it would be like to not have to ask for permission, that that alone is a life's journey. And there are those who may not be able to be back in the communities that they came from and have to find another place where they can actually feel some degree of freedom. Yes. And then there's few who, like you, were able to think about crossing borders, crossing boundaries, to go to another side of the world and to recognize that those in schools and prisons there had something in common with you and that you could help build a community together that could transform. So I wanted to ask you, I I, I recognize the, the role that the Mandela family and particularly Long Walk to Freedom and his own story played in your ability to see light, right? Yes. I also just want to understand how, how you physically got there, right? Like you didn't meet her until you were in a grocery store and you were already yes. there, right? So, yeah. so how, did you, how, did, how did you get there? Well, many can't actually get past the street they grew up
1: on. Okay, well, this is an interesting point that you're raising because having served 20 years in prison, I came out with a very clear uh, plan, uh, commitment, that I would spend the next 20 years of my life Doing the work of providing an alternative example of what is possible. So, you all, all of us have heard the stories ban the box, there's your felony conviction is a barrier to your employment, and all those horrific things that are collateral consequences of felony convictions. What I was clear about was upon leaving prison, I was not going out asking for a job, number one. My plan was to go out and volunteer in places where they were doing work I was deeply passionate about. So I went to the Urban League in Dayton, Ohio, and there Mr. Willie F. Walker had received my uh, email with my resume, and I had my business cards, which I made at Fed- FedEx Kinko, where I cut the paper myself and handwrote my name on it with my email address. And I gave him proudly my business card. And he looked at me and he started reading, NOCF. What is that? I said, Norfolk Correctional Institution. He said, WPC, Walpole Correctional Institution. He said, well, were you deputy warden? I said, no, sir, scholar in residence. He said, scholar in residence. I said, yes, sir, inmate two eleven four zero two. 402 He said, like a criminal? I said, yes, sir, that's part of the story. Let me tell you the rest. When we got through, he asked me if I would mentor his son. See, you don't know who's having challenges because of the way they're dressed sitting in front of you. We make assumptions about how people are well. We make all of these grand assumptions. And so I said, I'm going to spend the next 20 years of my life doing the kind of work I'm deeply passionate about And this whole idea of having a lot of money or not having a lot of money, wealth is quality of life. Quality of life has to do with what kind of relationships do you have with the people around you that you say you care about? What kind of communication do you have in those relationships? If you tell me that, I'll tell you the quality of life you have, no matter how much money you have access to. So, that process was one in which, I went to volunteer for the Urban League and within two months, I was hired full time. I outworked everybody on the field because I was passionate about it. I wasn't getting up for a paycheck. I was getting up because I understood that this is the work I owed to pay forward. Those who looked at my son, and I had been a teenage father, looked at my son and said to him, we're not going to allow your father's incarceration to be an excuse for your failure. I owed deeply. And so March 1st of this year, i reached my 20th year anniversary. This year, March 1st. And I'll be 60 May 31st. And I'm feeling like Moses. I don't think I'm going <laughs> to even get to <laughs>
0: <laughs> So yeah. <laughs> I have a question that I, I wasn't I wasn't thinking about until we sat here, and you said at the beginning about at seventeen, you think you're a man? Yes, until you meet men yes. I thought you were going to say until you meet women. no so so boys so, lie so much about that. <laughs> please. but I do want to ask you a question about a journey to free yourself from some of the ways in which men are engaging today and what role did women play in your journey? It's something that we we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. Yes. And so if we we change that sentence, even though I know that's not the way in which you intended to say it or said it, uh, how would you think about the women in your life in different ways who have allowed you to be at 60 and feel like Moses?
1: Well, let me just say this. I had an incredible uh, mother who was my absolute First teacher uh, and lifelong teacher who um, my entire life told me that I was called to be exceptional. She said, you need two things to succeed, son. And she assumed that faith in God was foundational. You need two things to succeed, education and a commitment to excellence, so when she heard I joined the Black Panther Party, she was completely outraged. My father's side of the family, they were fine with it. They were all politically active protesting all that was wonderful. My mother's side were very very kind of upper income uh African Americans who we were black then, I think. Yeah, I you know we we changed our name so many times. We, I think we were black at that period. So <laughs> but but she was but but she was an incredible influence in my life with respect to expectations around excellence. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I joined the party and became a a child activist and all of those kinds of things where I was conscientized around social justice and struggle and the, the ideology of the party, My relationship became very damaged, very fractured with my mother. In fact, I remember her telling me one of two things was going to happen to me. I would either be shot down in the streets and my body would be left somewhere on a street corner and she'd have to come and collect it like a dog. Or I would end up in prison at the bottom of life living like a dog and she would not come and visit me because she would not be able to bear the sight of her child. Ending up in that space because he chose not to listen. And I'll tell you this, I I absolutely resented her for saying that to me. It took me another 30 years to come to a place of reconciliation with her fear. I didn't understand a mother's fear for her child being as precarious as life was for a young boy like me in a world that she had much more consciousness about in terms of the dangers that were out there, that she lived with daily, just in having given birth to me. I didn't grasp it. I had, I was clueless. The only time my mother came to visit me is when I was stabbed by Aryan Brotherhood members in prison. They air flighted me out. I I came back, and I got a call that I had a visit. I went out there, and my mother was there. She absolutely became hysterical. She lost it, started crying. I had to get up and leave the visiting room because there was no place for me to be that person at that moment in that environment. To have to walk away from your mother and you have been stabbed by people who have said they're going to kill you, they're going to finish it. I cannot tell you how that wounded me. I don't tell most of my stories because I don't want to create secondary trauma. I understand it. So most of the time, I'm able simply to talk about the top level of the experience so as not to damage someone else who has to listen or who chooses to listen. But my mother felt it. One of my greatest joys and accomplishments in my life is that I was able to get out of prison and my mother had an opportunity to see me becoming the human being that she knew she gave birth to not the man the human being that she knew she gave birth to because she was very clear you are a dignified human being with a responsibility to be that way with every human being you meet and i do not accept anything less of that from you that lesson informs who I am today. So that's my gratitude to my mother.
0: I feel like in many ways you took a journey back to your mother. I did. And to the exceptional human being that she gave birth to.
1: I'm honored for you to even say such a thing.
0: Let's go back to the childhood Uh, and being part of the, as a child activist, being part of the Black Panther Party. And you talked about your mother's fears. I I, I wanted to get a sense of how you thought about uh, being... The the raising of consciousness about social injustice, about the way the system is broken Mm -hmm. in all the ways that we could spend some time talking about but is not the the focus of this conversation. What role did that play for you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Was it... And, and, and was it a role of giving you a sense of of context and grounding? Was it a role of instilling anger? Was it a role of preparing you for what was to come? How did you think about um, that consciousness at that time in your life as a child? And how we should think about that kind of education that we're providing?
1: As I said earlier, I was basically kind of that happy-go-lucky, mild-mannered kid who always believed that if there was a conflict, we could negotiate, we could talk about it, we could work things out. Um, I kind of lived in a bubble, if you will. Um, And when the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense came into uh, the community, they had a free school breakfast program where all the kids who were cool wanted to hang out. So of course I wanted to be there. So we, so we, we had political education, history lessons, karate lessons, I excelled. I had an opportunity then to um, be engaged with some organizers. And I remember there was this uh, young girl, I mean, I'm saying younger, she was like 19 or so, which for me was like a woman. And I had a crush on her because she was just so beautiful. And she was teaching the political education class and I remember one day I was excelling in my studies and and she, she looked at me, she says, you know, you come here, you're excited about being here and everything. She said, what are you doing to make a difference? You come here, you're smart, you answer all the questions. It, that's fine, but what are you doing to make a difference? And I remember that I actually couldn't answer that question. I gave a glib answer, but I couldn't answer that question authentically. And I went back home, and I that question to this day is a question I ask myself. But... I determined that I would dedicate my life to making a difference, that my whatever I had, whatever gifts, whatever talent, whatever things I thought were exceptional about me, they were only for the purpose of uplifting others. And so the education that I began to get around dialectical materialism and the whole host of other ideological concepts, I didn't have the intellectual maturity as a child to grasp how to use that in a way that was transformational. I just didn't have it. So it was inevitable that something would go amiss. I became increasingly angry. The more that I learned about what was wrong with society, the angrier I became. And the fact that I wasn't doing enough to do something to change it made me feel personally responsible. So my anger turned into delinquency, and my delinquency matriculated into crime. But the wonderful thing is, is as Emerson said, the only person you're destined to become is the person you decide to be. That's it. Full stop. So tell me who you decide to be, and I'll tell you who you'll become.
0: And on that note, I want to thank you. for sharing your journey and for allowing us to take it with us on all of our long walks to freedom.
1: Thank you, Carolina.